Hi everyone, this is Graham Cowan and welcome to the Caring CEO Podcast. We create this podcast because we believe that every leader's number one priority is to build a more caring and resilient team who enjoys growing together. It is my job to interview CEOs and other senior leaders who value building both a culture of care and a culture of high performance. I'm very keen to understand how they do this, and I'm sure there'll be lots of insights and tips for anyone who wants to build a high-performing team. I just had a really interesting chat with Cameron Schwab. Amazingly, Cameron was made the CEO of Richmond Football Club when he was just 24 years of age, the youngest appointment in 168 years of AFL history. He also worked as a CEO of both the Melbourne Club and the Fremantle Dockers Club. His experience with those organisations over 25 years convinced him that having a culture of care was essential to high club performance, but also high team performance on the field. He also knows that a culture of care counts in the boardroom of businesses and government as well. On his LinkedIn page, he has a quote that says, it is the hard days that define us. And he embraces that philosophy by not so much dwelling on what happens to us, but how we respond. He is also honest in sharing his failures, including being sacked as a CEO and how he responded to that. He is convinced that a team can only rise as high as its leadership capability. And so leaders that constantly reflect and grow and try are the ones that will ultimately lead to outstanding performance. Cameron is a real deep thinker and I learned a lot from our discussion and I'm sure you will too. If you find the insights and values of this podcast helpful, please rate us and write a comment. We really want to understand what you're finding most helpful. And remember, if you rate us, it helps other people to find us. It's an absolute delight to have you here today, Cameron. Thanks for joining us. Well, thanks, Graham, and thank you very much for the opportunity. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Yeah, me too. Cameron, what does care in workplace mean to you? Care for me is what I would consider the most fundamental objective of any leader, any organisation, any team, is to be able to say to someone, you belong here, and you belong here on the basis of the character you bring, you know, your integrity, your intent your reason for being here, you belong here because there's actually something you can do which is helpful to us. You know, you've, you've got a, an experience or an expertise, track record, which helps us as it relates to the performance of the organisation and probably those two things then from that create a connection between you and what we do and who we are. It was interesting I heard, it was actually Ricky Ponting who's, who's coaching in the IPL and he talked about his for values that he was seeking. And the IPL is, is, you know, they're only together for 10 or 11 weeks. And so to actually build a really strong team ethos in a really short period of time is, is, would be a great challenge. And he talked about the usual things you would assume in terms of the attitude the players bring and get, get the most from every session, all those sorts of things. But he finished with the word care. He said, so one of the four values is care. Mm. And he said, because I've never been a part of a team which has been successful, which hasn't had care, either as a player or as a coach. And, and so here, here is a person where, you know, obviously Australian cricket's been up for grabs in, in recent times in, in terms of its ethos and its values. Uh, he's a person who's a product of that system who is now taking those learnings into a high stakes, high performance, high expectations environment. And, and I think probably we'll come back into that, that thought that we've got to build belonging really quickly here. I really like how you brought belonging into that as well as connection 
When you think back about your time as CEOs with some of the football clubs, how did you go about promoting that sense of belonging? I failed often. <laughs> that would be that would be my first thought. Firstly, I think I made an assumption that it would happen. And the one thing that the football clubs are is that there there is an obvious sense of a greater good. You know, the, the minute that you're involved in it, particularly, you know, and the, the clubs I was involved with, one of the clubs in Melbourne Football Club was actually the creator of the game of Australian football. So in 1858, the original person basically holding my job, I'm now called the CEO, but in those days they were called the secretary. The guy by the name of Tom Wills wrote the very first rules of Australian football and the Melbourne Football Club was, was formed. And so... You're immediately part of something which is bigger than you. There's a folklore, there's a heritage. There are many people who have been under the roof of that house, if you like. And sometimes I took that for granted. And I think particularly as uh, the diversity of organisations change, there is a danger that you can get stuck between old ways and new ways. And probably as a reflection, I would say I made my worst choices when I got stuck in old ways. It might have been a bit risk averse or I was feeling threatened or my ego was going to take a kick or I was feeling vulnerable or you know, I was feeling like an imposter, all the things that you do when you're a CEO. And I think that probably created a selfishness in my behaviours. Then I reflect on the times when it was at its best was when those things were there. There's almost a feeling of warmth which comes over me as I'm, as I'm sitting here, you know, because I, <laughs> I remember the relationships, I remember the times, I remember... When we faced into some really difficult situations, how we managed to show enough care for each other, but also recognise that we were going to ultimately be measured by the performance of the organisation as well. And, and then I would bring those two things together, care and performance. For the purpose of our listeners, can you just give a brief overview of how you got to where you are now in your career? And I, I used the word before under the roof of the house. I, I, the, the roof of my house was the game of Australian football. So in the AFL, I grew up in the game. My father was a well-known person in the sport. Um, I had a cousin who played 200 games of AFL football and coached. And almost some sense of inevitability, I suppose, I found myself in the game and initially uh, as an office boy. Then as a, quite quickly, I started recruiting a you know, talent scout. And that was a wonderful opportunity, worked with some outstanding people in the sport and then at 24 years of age I was given the opportunity to be the CEO of the Richmond Football Club which is the club I grew up supporting. The next 25 years I was a CEO of the three AFL clubs and uh, they've probably all of them given me the best and worst of times but they were they were certainly <laughs> under that roof. Um, and then I got kicked out of the house and I got the sack in 2013 as the CEO of Melbourne Football Club and probably come to terms way too slowly with the fact that I had to try and build a life beyond it. So I was almost like the uh, player who uh, had to try and create a, a second identity for yourself when you were pretty comfortable with the first one in, in, in some <laughs> ways. And, uh, and I've spent probably the time since doing that in a couple of forms. Firstly, uh, I ended up studying fine art. So I studied fine art at the Victorian College of the Arts. I always enjoyed drawing and creativity. And uh, over the last four years, I've established a business called Design CEO, which is really having on a daily basis the conversations that we're having now. How do you build organisations which can align a group of people to a, a an idea or a vision, a thought, which gives us the opportunity of performing at a high level, but also gives people the opportunity of, of aligning their careers to whatever the best that organisation can provide. Being appointed as CEO of Richmond at 24 years of age is extraordinary. When you took that on, how did you feel? There was one part of me which was very confident. I thought I had an insight into the game itself, which then gave me a platform to have the conversations 
which are the most important ones if you're talking about a performance organisation as to how do we get people performing well in the context of it. I was still very much growing as a person and, and it would often would be reminded because because I then had to deal with young men for the next 25 years and, and the ups and downs of their lives and often behaviours which were outside of the, the expectation it were. And I remember one of our performance psychologist saying, well, the male brain doesn't kick in till it's about 25 or 26. And, I, and I'm <laughs> thinking, well, I'd, I'd taken on this responsibility. And I, I wasn't any prodigy or anything like that. So I was immediately surrounded by some excellent mentors, one of which in particular, a guy by the name of Neville Pro was president of Richmond at the time. And whilst he always had expectations of me and, and particularly at a behavioural level, he never made me feel young. Even the courage that he showed to appoint someone at that And I did it for the next six years. There were times where clearly I thought I was outside of my depth, Uh, but then I could almost physically feel myself growing each day. It was it was was that extreme, but it had its ups and downs. There's no there's no question. A lot of uh, trying and learning and setbacks and that sort of thing. Would you say? Yeah, and you don't want for advice, you know, when you're you see how (laughs) sort of that's for sure. It was actually making sense of the advice. Is in you know, and also uh, understanding you know even at the most basic level who to trust, who not to trust, you know who who's is in it for the right reasons, all those things, and, and knowing that what you were doing it wasn't it was never going to be a popularity contest. The decisions you make when you're in a when when you're in those roles are going to affect the lives of, of people, and and often you know you're sitting down with people and explaining to them that they're no longer playing for your football club or they're no longer working for the football club that they. It might have been for them, you know, the pinnacle of their careers, the pinnacle of their working lives. And for a lot of them, it was more than a career, it was their vocation. And to actually have to sit down and have that conversation with them. Was, um, and, and very early in the piece, because we were, we were really, we were a struggling club. And then, you know, later on in the piece, I had that decision made for me, as in people sitting me down. Probably in that way, gave me a different appreciation of what that felt like as well. You have across your LinkedIn a banner which says, it is the hard days that define us. Yeah. How did you come to really believe that? I have a little simple formula that situation happens, SH. And some people might say shit happens, but situation (laughs) doesn't equal outcome. Situation happens multiplied by our response equals the outcome. Mm. And generally, uh, as leaders, we're almost in the business of ambiguity. If we're not doing ambiguity, we're not doing leadership in lots of ways. If not for ambiguity, we don't need leadership because it stuff sorts itself. And so if, the first thing you almost have to face up to as a leader is your life is going to be incredibly ambiguous. You know, you are going to be faced, if you're doing your job properly, you're, you're faced with what I call the 51-49 decisions. You're not making the 60-40 decision because someone else really should be making those decisions for you because you've got a team which has that form of capability. So if you're in the 51-49 business, well, your 49s are going to get up a lot. So you're going to you're going to you're going to make mistakes. You're going to make errors. And as a CEO, when you make those errors, they they have consequences. You know, and not just clearly not just for you. Uh, they'll they'll have a material consequence on the performance of the organisation or the lives of those who are impacted by that. And so if you're not prepared to actually build a mindset of learning into that. Somehow you're you're trying to pretend you're not human. I think mm. in your own in your own way, we can't change what's happened, but we can draw meaning from it. And people like to say, "Oh, hindsight's twenty twenty. Well, well, it's not. It's your recall. It's your way of thinking about 
what's actually happening. It's not, we're not putting on a DVD and pressing rewind and playing mm-hmm. it again. It's whatever our take is. And I know that in, in life, whether it was, um, I lost my, my father in difficult circumstances. I was diagnosed with depression when I was in my twenties or my early thirties. You know, I've got a child who's changed gender, being sacked from my roles. I, I know they're the times I've built the most insight. Having come to that realization, it was saying, why should I rely on an ordeal to create that uh, way of learning? Why can't we bring a system of learning and understanding into our lives without the ordeal? When you took over three of your roles as CEO for football clubs, they weren't in great shape. Do you have insight now about the best things to do when, you, when a leader takes on a role where the group isn't going great? It's interesting because people have often said, well, how come you took those roles? And, and, and there was no, that was never by design. So it was three clubs in crisis, basically. The, the reason I take those roles is because they're the club looking for CEOs, you know, so the situation <laughs> vacant written on the – so there's a job in the paper. Um, generally, you don't take over roles as CEO of a major sporting club when they're going well. You know, people are very ensconced and they're enjoying the fruits of their labour, really. So that unless there's some peculiar situation or circumstance. So they do create a great opportunity. The first thing is never let a good crisis go to waste. That that would be for that'd be one thing. You've got you you actually have got a little bit of a burning platform where you can you can make a choice. But I I would say the very first thing you actually got to do is 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 never underestimate the importance of hope. That, that you actually provide by being someone who is coming into the organisation in the terms of a CEO, it's not a quiet appointment. It's not a little appointment. It's, you know, it's, it's in the papers, it's talked about. Uh, and so how you present as the person who, first of all, can create a hope and expectation, but very, very quickly you need to be able to back it up. If you can't match the words with your own behaviours as a leader and model those. It's not what you proclaim, it's what you permit, it's what you practise and you're not backing it up really quickly. That initial energy that you bring will evaporate. The chances are you're still going to perform badly for a period of time unless there's just, you know, just something which is clearly out of line, which is just, you know, you can click the fingers and that's... but that. Generally, organisations are in those situations because a multiple of things aren't working well. And, you know, I would just say you've got to get as much talent into the place as quickly as you possibly can, all aligned to a a clear understanding of what you're seeking to achieve and building agreement around that and recognising that, you know, there'll be timelines associated with that, there'll be trade-offs that we have to make in terms of that uh, so you, you, you build it as a person, but you also build it in regard to uh, the strategies that you're seeking to create. But get good people, good behaviours happening as quickly as you possibly can. We um, both spoke at a conference called Lunex, and so I had the chance to listen to you, which I really enjoyed. And one of the things that really struck me was that you talked about talent leadership and systems leadership. Could you just explain a bit more about that and how that applies in reality? First of all, they are the reality. The, the only two levers you have as a leader are your talent leader and your, your systems leader. And your talent is a product of the system as well. Like how, do you, how do you go about recruiting, retaining, developing you know, the best people you can? 
And so recognising that those two levers are always going to be in motion. And so if you're going to have those hands on the, the lever, you, you can't rest either of them. You know, they, they are forever there. That's your, that's your, your daily checking is how am I going on both of those things. So I'm all for setting goals and having visions and we need to have a light at the top of the hill unless you can quite quickly build a, a system which is actually going to meaningfully take uh, progress you in the context of that. And and by system, I'll even talk, I, I talk about strategy as a system and with outcomes which will require you to, even if you think of strategy, if, if, if a strategy is not compelling for a start, it's not going to uh, encourage the hope and the enthusiasm that we spoke of previously. If the strategy isn't making the best use of scarce resources, then in this moment, and there's, there's always going to be a scarcity of resource in one way, whether that's you know, access to finances, access to talent, whatever it might be. The system that you're creating is not going to support the vision that you actually have. And ultimately, it then relies on the talent that you bring in. And, and talent is measured by the behaviours of those people. And mm-hmm. The, the most important aspect of any form of strategic execution is the day-to-day behaviours of the people who are required to execute. And so when we talk about things like care, as an example, uh, care then encourages selflessness and selflessness then uh, relates to the behaviours which are required to elicit the, the level of performance that we're talking about, particularly in, in elite sport. So you've got to drive that right from the start. It's a simple little formula. Leadership drives culture, which drives behaviours, which drives performance. And I don't think you can outperform your leadership at any <laughs> level. And really it's that feeling as a, as a leader, as a CEO, when you, when you walk in the room and you look around and you say, have I got the right people in the room? And if I was sitting down here in, in two years' time, who would I actually like to have in the room? Uh, who should be in the room? Who shouldn't be in the room? Mm. Um, whose behaviours can I trust here? Because ultimately, that's what culture is. So it's can you trust the behaviours of the people who then have to drive the performance of the organisation? I, I remember you also saying on stage that, you know, when you watched a football game, you could tell whether it was a, a talent problem or a systems problem if something went wrong. Yeah. How do you go about that assessment? Probably a fair bit of it's just the way I've grown up. From the outset, I think of if I watch a game of football, I don't think of it as club versus club. I do think of it as system versus system. And the system is, you know, how, how is that team seeking to play to give itself the best chance of beating whoever they're playing against? If you and I are in business, we, we might be competing, but we're not competing one on one. You know, we're not competing mm-hmm. with 180,000 people at the MCG. So it's, it's, a, it's a different form of competition. You've got someone who is developing a system to try and break down your system in a very active and in-time way. But then I look at it and say, well, is what about their system of developing talent? Are they, are they the, the players who are on the field, are they there to win today, which clearly you, you would like to do that, or are they trying to build something which will give them a really good chance of winning tomorrow? And if you're in neither of those two places, and it's, it's a wonderful metaphor for any business or, or probably any any life. You, you either want to be in a situation where you can be successful now or you can be successful within a time frame which you're prepared to see your way through. And when you're in neither of those two spaces, you know, that's that's where the energy evaporates. And as a leader, often you you know you're in one of those two phases, but other people around you might sense that so much. They they, they don't have the same they don't have the same view. You're a little bit higher up the hill. Your view is a little bit different to what someone who might be just feeling the losses, you know, acutely. Whereas you say, yeah, I'm, I'm prepared to wear that loss on the basis that 
you know, I, I see where the, our improvement's actually coming from. And that again comes back to what we spoke about before in terms of when you come into the organisation. That's not a one-off story you're telling. You're, you're, you're telling that story all the time. You know, you almost become a little bit of a cliche yourself in, in some ways. You have to keep reinforcing the story. You have to keep explaining we're on track. You have to keep celebrating the small wins. And so you might be watching one team get beaten by 10 goals on a day, but you know they're closer, that the team that lost is closer to winning the premiership than the team that won. Mm. And, and I think that that assessment, and, and that's part experience, but I think it's mainly mindset. Are you bringing a learner mindset into the organisation to actually sense when it's on track, when it's not on track? Or are you coming into the room as a knower who just keeps wanting to tell people what you want them to do rather than teach them what to do? Those, those sorts of things I think are fundamental to, to any form of leadership. If you believe like we do that a leader's number one priority is to build a more caring and resilient team who enjoys growing together, you may be interested in these three free resources we've provided at our website, factorc.com.au. The first one is the We Care Credo poster, and this contains the mindset and values of teams that prize self-care, crew care, and red zone care. The second resource is a poster called How to Support a Teammate in Distress. And this provides easy to follow instructions on how to identify someone who's struggling, how to have the Are You OK conversation with empathy, and how to guide them to the help that they need. And the third resource is a Building a Mentally Healthy Culture Checklist. And this provides items to think about before you launch an initiative, how you do a great launch, and then thirdly, how to keep the momentum going following the launch. These three free resources can be found at factorc.com.au. I know now that you help organisations and senior leadership teams to operate better. What are some of the foundations that you put in place to improve that performance? I think it starts with the leader themselves and the attitude they bring because they're going to be, you know, I mentioned before, you can't outperform your leadership. And, and I just have a little simple framework. I go, it, it comes back to that, what I've mentioned before. Situation happens, time's response equals outcome. So if your response is one of uh, blame, is it one of criticism, is it one of deflection, You've just taken yourself below the line. And and by below the line, I'm, I'm talking about behaviours which they find friends easily, all of those things, criticism, blame, deflection. But there's no solution in any of them, no solution at all. So the first role of the leader is to take responsibility. Like even what we've experienced over the last 12 months, a, a pandemic is to blame, perhaps. But it's not a solution in blaming it. Mm. So the, the core of it is to take responsibility. When we're in a situation, what happens is we often, we, we, our, our response to that situation will be one of which we didn't think we would respond in that way. You know, we, we think we're always going to respond in an optimistic, positive, take responsibility way, but we don't. You know? mm. So how quickly you can take yourself back above the line, and, I, and by above the line, I talk about radical responsibility, not just a form of responsibility, but radical responsibility. And from that, you can actually build either resolution, as in we know what we're going to do next, we're going to actually work out how we deal with this situation, or at least resilience to see our way through it. And so the radical responsibility, the two responses, one, a resilience or a, you know, a response, which is appropriate to that circumstance. 
And the only way you will do that is if you stay calm, if you're brave, and if you're humble. And even in the context of that, so my, my advice when any, to any leader when they're facing into such challenging situations is this, first of all, pause, because your first response is unlikely to be the best one. And just write down on a piece of paper, what does this situation expect of me now as a leader? And then write those three words, calm, humble, brave. And then write a sentence under each of them as it relates to the context and the content of whatever you're facing at that time. And you mightn't get it right, but you've just increased your chances of getting it right by a significant amount, mm. just by doing that. I look back on my time as a CEO when I wasn't those things, when I wasn't brave, when I walked past standards that I should have called out when I wasn't humble, when I let my ego kick. And, and that happened more often and probably almost out of a sense of insecurity rather than you know, anything else. You know, or, you know, was I, um, you know, did I stay calm? I had a wonderful mentor, a fellow by the name of Neil Craig, who coached Adelaide Football Club. And whenever we faced into a difficult situation, and the one thing that sport is great at is reflecting on why something actually happened. We won because we lost because... You know, business doesn't do that as well. So sport is very good at the what happened, just so we can build as much learning from it as we can, not with recriminations, but just for learning. And the first question uh, Neil Craig would ask was, did we stay calm? Did we stay calm? And so the first question wasn't anything to do with what the outcome was. It related to our behaviours in that moment. And we basically, if in our assessment of that question, we said, no, we didn't. We fundamentally had reduced our chances of creating the optimal outcome by some significant percent. And that's the same in negotiation, that's the same in, you know, the conversation about, you know, someone's career, about, you know, all the things you're likely to face into as a leader. So in terms of the work I do now, it starts with the leader themselves and quite quickly extends into their teams. If the leader themselves are not taking responsibility for their own behaviours, it is unreasonable to have any expectation of the behaviours of others. And ultimately, performance is a product of those behaviours. Mm. And uh, so it starts with that. And it's a hard job. The one thing I've, I've got a really strong view of is I will never forget how hard the job is now that I'm advising people who are in those jobs <laughs> where it's not where that sense of responsibility sits with you, where the next day you have to make a choice on someone's life, someone's career, mm. you know, um, change a business model, change a framework, you know, deal with a difficult customer, whatever it might be, you know, deal with those ones which keep you up. You mentioned before, Cameron, about, you know, being very open about ups and downs in your career. Can you recall, either in your personal life or work life, something that really shattered you that was incredibly challenging and, and then how you, how you got around that and reflected on it? Well, the most shattering events were, when I was sacked, would be the most shattering. But then there were those ones in the moment. As a leader, there's going to be things happening around you, as in the world that you're living in, the circumstance, the situation, which are then likely to have an uh, impact and there might be other things going on. But what then is happening inside you, either in response to that or just inside you because of how you feel about yourself or how you, you know, what's going on in your family. And people might have a certain degree of empathy for those, for those things, but it's really how you show up, which is how you're measured. And so sometimes... Yeah, and, and it could be that we just faced into a, we just might have, the team might have been thrashed and we might have lost five games in a row. And I'm, I was totally bereft of ideas and thoughts as to how we turn it around. And, and you know that you're going to take up the back five pages of the Herald Sun the next day. And, and I can remember driving home. My, my wife, Cecily, would be beside me. 
And I'd say to her, I said, I think I'm stuffing this whole thing up. I think I'm making a mess of this. And she's a clinical psychologist, so it was probably handy at that moment. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember her saying, it was early, she said, you're allowed to think like that for the next two hours. You're allowed to think like that for the next two hours. And that might be the best advice I've ever had. Because what would happen is I'd then go home, I might, I might even put the game on again, even if it had been thrashed. And it generally wasn't as bad as it seemed. That would be the first. And it was, you're watching it without all the noise and all of those things. You know, I'd even turn the commentary down. And then within about half an hour, I'd find my mood start to change. I'd start thinking about what is one, two, three things that I can do. When I show up tomorrow, how do I best show up? And if you can't take responsibility for your own emotional states during those times, therein lies your opportunity for growth as a leader. Mm. Because that is what was happening around me was pushing me below the line. I was actually behaving in a way which I would never expect to. I was sucking. I was taking it personally. I was doing all of these things. The worst person to blame in those moments is you. You know, the most toxic version of blame is self-blame. And the only positive way of moving forward is to take responsibility. And so even in, and, and that's a, a micro version of the macro of being sacked, that the first time I was sacked, I was at a really vulnerable stage of life and emotionally struggling at a whole lot of levels. And as a result of that, got diagnosed with clinical depression, which is, I now call it my gift of depression, because it was actually, I think, in many ways, the trigger which encouraged me to go deep, because I, I didn't want to have depression. Or if I was going to, it was going to be part of who I was. Can I at least use it as something which, as a form of growth, or at least I could, you know, I could still be a good father, or I could still be a good husband, or whatever other things. And the only way you can do that is by taking responsibility. And so for me, it was very much about, you know, whether it was my meditation, it was exercise, it was diet, it was all those, all those sorts of factors. So it was just a question of taking responsibility. You know, the, the cavalry mm. wasn't coming over the hill to save me. I knew that. Mm. Certainly, there were people who could help me. Uh, ultimately, it was up to me. Yeah. And, and uh, I hope that doesn't sound too indulgent, but it's that sense of particularly uh, if you're employing a whole lot of people because they're feeling it like you're feeling it and, and they need to see something from you. And, th- and that's not coming in as the person with the answers. That's coming in with the person saying, I'm confident the answers are in this room. And that's a, that's a big difference, isn't it? Yeah, because often people want you to come in with the answers. Mm. And so and, and all, it, it, sometimes it's just that you've just got to move. You've just got to move one inch forward. And, and that's enough that, yeah, I feel better. Yeah, and, and we finished the meeting by saying, have we made the Melbourne Football Club better today? Or hey, in the last two hours, have we made those clubs better today? And that little check-in is really important because what that actually does is it takes it outside of this room because everyone's feeling a bit sorry for themselves. Everyone's feeling a bit wounded in those moments. Where do you consider yourself on the uh, introvert-extrovert scale, Cameron, and, and what impact does that have in the way that you work? I'm probably more introverted than extroverted, and that's where I get my energy from, my natural energy. I'm more likely to get my energy from a one-on-one conversation such as this or a really good book or a great podcast than I am from a room full of people. And so I had to always, even when I was entering into a room full of people, I do give myself a little pre-game prep to make sure I'm in a good place if I do show up in a positive way. Being on the introverted side has probably been a bit of a blessing because it means that I do prepare myself you know, for those situations. When you reflect on your life and career, what advice would you give your 20-year-old self? Probably the first one was, would be that it'll be okay. The, the worrying about anything is, is a waste of energy. 
you can't worry about something which hasn't happened yet and something which has happened which you're worrying about you can't change. It would be about staying present. It would also be about about conversations you might never get to have. I lost my father in a really important stage of life and we still had 30 years of talking to do. And I I think about the, the conversations we had which were really unimportant. And I still think even today, 30 years on, I still go to Reem and find out what happened then, you know, and trying to build. And he was a complicated person and, and probably I needed to be the age I am now to have the conversations that, that I would have liked to have had. And so I think about that with my own kids, mm. you know, about what should we really be talking about. I, I did a drawing recently and it was, and, and the drawing looks a lot like my grandfather. And as, as I've got older, I, I think I've skipped a generation. I don't look a lot like either of my parents, but I look a lot like <laughs> my mum's father. Who, he taught me how to draw. He got here, it was butcher paper and those old tradie pencils, and he taught me how to draw horses when I was about. And horses are hard to draw. They're always hard to draw. You know? <laughs> and, and, but it was a system of how to draw a horse, you know. <laughs> and so, and I loved comics, and, and so all of my, and my artwork today is, is quite comic book like, you know. And he was my first sense of loss in life. He died when I was about 15. And so this drawing I've done, I've told her it, we still had talking to do. And it's, and it's, it, it's, it could be him and he's, he's, he's just got an ice cream in his hand. He used to go to the, he served in World War II and he used to go to the RSL. And it, it wouldn't matter if it was 40 degrees in Melbourne, he'd always have a suit and a tie and the braces. And, and he was a gardener. He wasn't like a guy who would get in a suit and a tie. And he'd come around to our house and he'd bring a tub of Neapolitan ice cream <laughs> around. You know? And my, my older sister would get the chop that I'd get the strawberry and <laughs> rather than get the vanilla, you know, and, uh, and that was a big thing. Mm. And so it's 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 an old man uh, with an ice cream, a strawberry <laughs> ice cream, but it's me in thirty years time, twenty years time. And I would just like to think that I've had the conversations that were the important ones with the people who are important to me. My grandfather didn't die young or anything like that. He died suddenly, but it was he wasn't young. My father did die young and was sudden. And it is then the conversations. But I also think about other mentors. I've had Alan James, who was a great coach, who was a wonderful mentor. And I, and I, and I actually got to have conversations at the end of his life. Mm. And maybe you need to get to that point before you have them, that they are really powerful. And, and, and actually one of them was because he asked me to speak at his funeral. And, and it was actually about that. So that, I, I think that's, so if you're talking about the advice of the younger person is that, to deliberately and, and practically put yourself in conversation with wise people is one of the great gifts. Mm. And they're people who have an insight, but also people who, who will have integrity for the conversation that you're going to have. Continue to seek people out in your life who will have that integrity and will have that insight. And you can give each other a hug at the end and know that it's been good for both of you. It's been an absolute uh, pleasure catching up with you today, Cameron. Is there anything else that you just wanted to add about performance, care, and uh, legacy, I guess. Well, they're all related. I, I, I think we've all had a before stage of life. We're, we're all currently at our because stage of life, you know, we're near because. And then we've all got a bit of a beyond, which might be our legacy mm-hmm. piece. But I think to, to have that, a couple of other Bs, if you like, your belief and belonging are, are two really powerful ones. And to realise that uh, and, and understand that, you know, there's, there's ways in which you can Build that into your own life by you know, the conversation we've had, by deliberately putting yourself in conversation with most people, by trying things which are different, by understanding. And I've, I've used the, the sort of the metaphor of the 
the game of football was my house, if you like, and all of a sudden it wasn't my house anymore. And there's probably still part of me which is grieving that house, but that might, but, but it forced me to climb a second mountain, and, and the second mountain is actually, in so many ways, better than the first mountain mm. uh, uh, because of that. And and so to always be in search of that that belief, belonging, peace. And as I mentioned, I've got a transgender daughter, Evie, and and I saw with her someone she changed into when she was seventeen, and and so I saw someone who spent the first seventeen years of their life trying to fit in, whereas now she belongs, and I see a different person because of that. Mm. And fitting in is a terrible waste of energy. You know, belonging is energizing. And so really almost that search for wise people is almost search for people who care, isn't it, really? <laughs> they, they, they care enough to give me their insight. They care enough to have integrity for the conversation. Yeah. And so the work that you're doing, the stuff you're doing here, is an example of that. And you, you're doing this because you care. Uh-huh. You know, I love Seth Godin's stuff. He says, it's one thing about an artist, and because I practice as an artist, you're not an artist until you ship your work, you know, and he uses the term ship. And what you're, what you're doing, Graham, is you're, you're shipping your art. <laughs> you're making it available for other people. Otherwise, it would have just been a little idea that you had to yourself. You know? It is a real privilege to speak with people like yourself and, and to share that message. And I think one of the lovely things that have happened already is how many people have commented on the really often authentic and deep discussions. And I think that's, you know, at a certain stage, you know, you're not pretending anymore. You, you, you say it how it is. And, and it does differ, of course, depending on your life stage. but. Uh, I really appreciated so much how honest you've been, the ups and downs, and then how you, you know, show up when things do happen. The SH and the response give you the outcome. And, uh, you know, it's a message that all, we all need to be reminded of. And I, you know, continually try to remind people in my resilience speech about that. It's not what happens to you, it's what you do. <laughs> and uh, real wonderful to hear your perspective on that. Thanks very much, Cameron. Really appreciate it. Thanks for your opportunity. Thanks for joining us today. I hope you've learned something new and heard some practical tips you can try with your team. If you enjoyed this interview today, please rate us on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. When you rate us, it helps other people to find us. We also welcome any comments. If you're interested in seeing details about our scalable WeCare mental health training programs, please visit us at factorc.com.au. Our goal for these programs is to make them accessible, practical, and ongoing. If you've been impressed by a CEO that you would like us to interview, please email details to support at factorc.com.au. Please subscribe by clicking the button below. We really would love to have you as part of the care movement. Thanks for joining us.